So tonight's going to be a little bit different. It's the last message on a Wednesday night for the year. And we've already taken Elijah to heaven. So tonight's not going to be about Elijah. But it's going to have been something that happened during the life and times of Elijah that we're going to talk about tonight. And God wanted me to reserve this message to be the last in this series from the book of First and Second Kings. But before we get to that tonight, I want to take you to Daniel chapter 5. I promise this ties into tonight's message, but it also is a preview for where we're going in three weeks. Because again, don't forget, January the 6th, the first Wednesday of the new year, we start a brand new series through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And many may wonder why the book of Daniel, especially at this time. Well, because more than even prophecy, Daniel is a book that reminds us about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. God is the one who rules and reigns. And if there is even a phrase, it's not even a whole verse, if there is a phrase that is going to tie into tonight's message from 1 Kings, as well as be sort of the umbrella over the entire series of Daniel, it is found in Daniel chapter 5, the first, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 5, verse 21. And it's toward the end of the verse. And notice what it says in Daniel chapter 5, the end of verse 21, starting with the word the in the net translation. The most high God rules over human kingdoms. That's it. The most high God rules over human kingdoms. And it goes on to say, and he appoints over them whomever he wishes. Basically, God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the one who is always and forever on his throne. He rules and reigns over everything that goes on on earth. With that said, would you please go back with me then to 1 Kings chapter 22 tonight? And while you're finding that, would you also please find 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 31. We'll refer to that verse a little bit later on, but I wanted you to have it handy. 2 Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 31. We'll be referring to that verse in just a little bit, but right now we're going back to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Does God leave anything to chance? Does God roll the dice about anything? Well, the Bible would tell us absolutely not. There is not one thing, one little detail that is outside of God's sovereignty. 
Everything is under God's control. If you and I embrace that, if we truly believe that, that should bring great comfort and encouragement to us as believers, even in the turbulent times in which we are living today, that nothing is happening and no one is getting this or that or not getting this or that, or nothing is happening outside of God's control. In fact, if there was anything, any detail in the universe that God was not in charge of or control of, that should cause us great concern. The fact that there is nothing outside of God's control, that he doesn't roll the dice or take a chance on anything should actually be the greatest of comforts and the greatest encouragements to us. Tonight, we're going to just read, basically, for the most part, which again is, I don't usually teach this way, but we're going to read a story, a fascinating story, from the life and times of Elijah, even though Elijah is not mentioned, it takes place during his lifetime, and it's found in 1 Kings chapter 22. I will make some comments along the way when they are appropriate, but I just want us to sort of follow along and sort of absorb and soak up what is happening here, okay? It starts out in 1 Kings 22, there was no war between Syria and Israel for three years. At one time, they were enemies, and there has sort of been a respite, if you will, of animosities between Israel and Syria. Now, let's remember also, at this time, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Israel is the name of the kingdom in the northern part, and Judah is the southern kingdom. So they're not unified at this point. They are divided. And in the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah came down to visit the king of Israel. And if you remember our study of Elijah, who is the king in Israel at this point? His name is Ahab, who's married to Jezebel, one of the most wicked rulers in the Bible, period, okay? And King Jehoshaphat comes to visit Ahab. Now, I will mention this also at this point. This passage does not talk about it, but remember how we talked about the fact that Elijah and Elisha, their friendship and relationship is what a good partnership should be all about? Well, guess what? Jehoshaphat and Ahab is what a bad partnership is all about. In a sense, it reminds us to be careful of who our partners are because Jehoshaphat is going to regret the fact that he in any way became allied and partnered with this guy named Ahab. In fact, he actually even puts a, a, a sword, if you will, through his own family and family history and family ancestry. Let me just tell you about that for a moment because it's not contained here. 
Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, marries Ahab and Jezebel's daughter named Ataliah. I'm not saying Jehoram was this great guy, but I can definitely tell you, Ataliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, was just like her parents. She was awful. She was wicked. In fact, she was so wicked, you want to know how wicked Adaliah was? She was so wicked, she had her own children murdered to hold on to power and position. That's how wonderful this girl Adaliah was. And Jehoshaphat's son married that girl. So you can imagine, good partnerships, Nothing better. Bad partnerships, nothing worse. And so that's what you're seeing here. Jehoshaphat goes down to visit Ahab. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to his servants, Surely you recognize that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, though we are hesitant to reclaim it from the king of Syria. Isn't it also interesting, if you know anything about Ahab, that he was very bothered about the fact that Naboth had this vineyard that was actually his, that he stole from him, and yet this property was actually serious. He actually wants back. It's funny how that goes. Ahab's all about himself, right? So there's this piece of property that he really wants to get back. So notice what he says to Jehoshaphat. Will you go with me to attack Ramoth Gilead? Basically, there's been peace between Syria and Israel for three years, but not any longer. He always wants more. He's never satisfied. Like a lot of people of the world, it doesn't matter how much they have, how much they accumulate, they're never satisfied. They always want more. So Jehoshaphat, verse 4, replied to the king of Israel, I will support you. My army and horses are at your disposal Oh, he's going to regret that. And yet, notice then what he says. Then Jehoshaphat added, uh, maybe first we better find out if that's what the Lord wants us to do. Now, notice that's backwards, right? <laughs> you get that? First thing he should have said is, let's pray about this and consult the Lord and make sure that going up to Syria and fighting this battle is what the Lord wants us to do. No, no. He already promises, I'm there with you. Oh, but maybe we better, you know. It's almost like I already know what I want to do, and you already know what you want to do. Let's just see if God will sort of rubber stamp it, right? Not totally, but it's just not quite right. And so even Jehoshaphat is not quite in alignment with God at this point in his life. So the king of Israel, verse 6, assembled about 400 prophets. Where'd they come from? Because the prophets of Baal, remember, died. Well, these were the other prophets that didn't show up on Mount Carmel. Remember, there were 850 prophets. Only 450 were there on Mount Carmel. These are the under, other 400 prophets that didn't show up. And asked them, should I attack Ramoth Gilead or not? Now, again, we're going to see this. All these people were, were what we call today yes-men. They, they were going to tell the king what they knew the king wanted them to say, right? Again, 
What good is that? What, what kind of advisor and counselor is that who's always telling us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear? And yet that's what many leaders, they surround themselves with no one who has any kind of, you know, other perspective or anything. It's just, well, whatever you want to hear, I'll, I'll tell you. So they said, verse 6, attack. The sovereign one will hand it over to the king. Now, interestingly, the word that they use here for God, sovereign one, is sort of a watered-down name for God. It's not Yahweh, Jehovah. It's not the covenant name of the God of Israel. Okay, so that's saying something, too. But notice, Jehoshaphat at least goes, is there not a prophet of the Lord still here that we may ask him? In other words, he sees through the fact that all these bunch of prophets, they're just telling Ahab and him what they think they both want to hear. He at least has enough spiritual discernment and insight to go, uh, I, I want to hear from God. I will say and commend him for that. That's, that's a good trait. God wants us to get to the place in our life where we can differentiate between the voice of God and the voice of another spirit. And even Jehoshaphat, even though he wasn't totally aligned with God at this point, he could tell these guys weren't really speaking for God or from God. You and I need to know that's the voice of God. That's God speaking to us. The king then, verse 8, says, well, there's still one, one man through whom we can seek the Lord's will. Wow. Think about what's just been said. This is God's people. This is the nation of Israel. And there's only one prophet who's willing to stand up and say what the Lord's will is. But notice what he says, Ahab. I despise him because he does not prophesy prosperity for me, but disaster. Well, maybe you should change what you do. Maybe the reason he's always prophesying disasters because you're always disobeying the Lord and rebelling against him. Maybe he would prophesy better things if you just followed the Lord. Crazy, isn't it? Oh, by the way, these are the leaders, right? Notice Jehoshaphat says in verse 8, the king should not say such things. Again, out of the two, Jehoshaphat's better than Ahab, but he's still lacking in Samaria. The fact that he's willing to even partner with Ahab, he should have been a million miles away from that guy. The king of Israel then summoned an official and said, quickly bring Micaiah, son of Imla. Now, the king of Israel and the king of Jehoshaphat of Judah, can you just see this picture, by the way, verse 10, were sitting on their respective thrones, dressed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, all their grand opulence and all that, you know, you can just picture him there, right? All the prophets were prophesying before them, and they were using all these, all these visuals to make it more effective, sort of like people do today. They, they use all the smoke and mirrors to try to, you know, woo the crowd and make it all more effective, right? 
So notice Zedekiah, verse, he made iron horns and said, this is what the Lord says. These iron horns are going to gore Syria until they're destroyed. All the prophets were prophesying the same. Attack Ramoth Gilead. You'll succeed. The Lord will hand it over to the king. I mean, aren't you at this point just going, <laughs> right? And then notice this, verse 13. The messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, look, you better fall in line because all the prophets are in complete agreement that the king will succeed. So you better agree with them. You must predict success. And I don't really know where Micaiah's head or heart is at this point because he says, well, certainly as the Lord lives, I will say whatever the Lord tells me to say. Well, but he doesn't. When he came before the king, the king asked him, Micaiah, should we attack Ramoth Gilead or not? And he answered, attack, you will succeed. The Lord will hand it over to the king. Now, is he doing that just because he knows they wouldn't listen to me anyway? I, I don't know. But that's not, that's not a message from God. And then notice even Ahab, this is crazy. Even Ahab says to him in verse 16, how many times must I make you solemnly promise in the name of the Lord to tell me only the truth? Even Ahab recognizes, ah, this isn't from God. Wow. How crazy is that? So Micaiah says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. Then the Lord said, they have no master. They should go home in peace. In other words, I'm cutting off the leadership of Israel. Which means, guess what? Ahab's going to die in this battle. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he does not prophesy prosperity for me, but disaster? Well, now, aren't you the one that got upset because he didn't speak the truth, and now you're upset because he does? It's the way some folks are today, aren't they? They can't be pleased no matter what you tell them. Micaiah said, that being the case, hear the word of the Lord. And finally, somebody, somebody gives a message that comes right from God. But notice how it starts. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Boom. It all starts with the idea that, wait a minute, Who's in charge here? Who's in control? Who's sovereign? It's God. It's not Ahab. It's not Jehoshaphat. It's not the king of Syria. It's nobody. The most high rules over the kingdoms on earth. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the heavenly assembly standing on his right and on his left. What a great vision. And the Lord said, who will deceive Ahab? So he will attack Ramoth Gilead and die there. Now, this is God speaking, right? Why? Because God understands this man is not really interested in me, so I will send deceiving spirits into his life. Don't miss that principle. When God knows a person is not interested in the truth, they will end up being deceived themselves. In fact, Paul even said to Timothy, one of the signs of the last days is that there will be deceivers who deceive others, but also end up being deceived themselves. Why or how does that happen? By these deceiving spirits that God, again, under his control, allows to go out and deceive the nations of the world. 
A spirit stepped forward, verse 21, and stood before the Lord. He said, I'll deceive him. The Lord asked him how. He replied, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. The Lord said, deceive and overpower him. Go out and do as you have proposed. This is the message Micaiah is telling him. In other words, he's saying, and this is how it worked. This is how you've even gotten to this place. You open yourself up to deception because your heart was not open to God's truth. And any time our heart is not willing to embrace God's truth, then we open ourselves and we make ourselves vulnerable to being deceived. So now look, verse 23, the Lord has placed a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, but the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Zedekiah then approached and hit Micaiah on the jaw and said, which way did the Lord's spirit go when he went from me to speak to you? Lovely guys, aren't they? Micaiah replied, look, you will see in the day when you go into the inner room to hide. Then the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the city official, and Joash, the king's son. Say, this is what the king says, put this man in prison. Give him only a little bread and water until I safely return. Basically, lock him up and just give him a few rations just to keep himself alive. That's the way he treated the Lord's prophet. Micaiah said, if you really do safely return, then the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, take note, all you people. <laughs> Basically, the prophet of the Lord says, let's watch and see what happens. Because God will be proven right, and my prophecy will be proven truth, because God always speaks truth. And this is the message God gave me. It will come to pass. Now we're getting to the where we're headed to tonight, right? You're saying, but it's about time. <laughs> Verse 29, the king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah attack Ramoth Gilead. Now, as if you think Jehoshaphat's a little bit thick to, to up to this point, oh, it gets better. Look at Verse 30. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to disguise myself and enter into the battle. In other words, I'm going to take off anything that makes me look like a king, and I'm going to put on my costume. I'm going to go incognito so that nobody in Syria knows I'm the king of Israel. But then he says, now the king of, uh, but you know, he didn't say anything about that to Jehoshaphat. So in other words, Jehoshaphat, you go into battle with all your kingly robes and all that kind of stuff, and I'll sort of go in disguise. Really? So the king of Israel disguised himself and then entered into the battle. Now the king of Syria had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight common soldiers or high-ranking officers, fight only the king of Israel. In other words, basically the king of Syria is saying, I want one person and only one. I want Ahab. That's it. When the chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat, now again, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm like, poor Jehoshaphat. How gullible do you have to be? I mean, it's bad enough that you partnered with this wicked Ahab. Then you allow Ahab to basically disguise. There's only two kings on that battlefield, Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And you're just allowing him to disguise himself, and you're willing to go in as the only one that looks like a king? I'd be saying, time out, Ahab. No way am I going to do that. 
Either you put your kingly robe back on or I'm taking mine off or something, but we're not playing that game. But he doesn't. It's, it's just incredible, isn't it, sometimes how we as human beings can just allow other people to sort of push us around and, and, and mold us to, and get us to do what, what their will is and their way is, and we just sort of get swept up in it and do it. Even leaders do that at times. But notice this. When the chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat, they said, he must be the king of Israel. Why? Because he was the only one on the battlefield that looked like a king. So they turned and attacked him. But Jehoshaphat cried out. Now stop there, because that's all that 1 Kings 22 tells us. Now I want you, before we go back to 1 Kings 22, just to flip over real quick to that verse in 2 Chronicles I told you about. 1831, because it gives us a little bit more information and reminds us again, God is in control. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they said, he must be the king of Israel. So they turned and attacked him. But Jehoshaphat cried out. That's where we left it, right? But notice the next word. The Lord helped him. God lured them away from him. God's sovereign. God's in control. Even as gullible and maybe as stupid and as unwise as Jehoshaphat is, guess what? It's not Jehoshaphat's time. It is Ahab's time. So no matter what Ahab does to try to get out of dying on that battlefield, Ain't going to happen. And anything that he tries to do to push Jehoshaphat forward to make it happen to Jehoshaphat, ain't going to happen. Because God's in control of what happened on that battlefield that day. So go back to 1 Kings 22. Here's the key verse in the whole chapter. I know you're like, gee, five minutes to go and you finally get to the key verse. Verse 34. Now, an archer shot an arrow at random, literally without definite aim, just innocently. I think he got tired of just, I don't know who to shoot. I'm just going to go bing. And notice, it struck the king of Israel, Ahab, between the plates of his armor. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, in between the tiny spaces of his armor. We have smart bombs today that aren't as smart as that arrow. You understand what I'm saying there? When God wanted that arrow to hit that target of Ahab, it wouldn't have mattered how much armor was on Ahab. It wouldn't have mattered how far it had to go. That arrow was going to find its mark because that's what God predicted. Because God was in control. God leaves nothing to chance. 
God never rolls the dice. And it doesn't matter how much the cards are stacked against us. If anybody had the cards stacked against them on that battlefield, it was Jehoshaphat, not Ahab. Ahab did everything he could, humanly speaking, to gain an advantage and to get off that battlefield alive, and yet he didn't. Why? Because it was God's will. The king ordered the charioteer, turn around and take me from the battle line because I'm wounded. While the battle raged throughout the day, verse 35, the king stood propped up in his chariot opposite the Syrians. He died in the evening. The blood from the wound ran down into the bottom of the chariot. As the sun was setting, a cry went through the camp. Each one should return to his city, to his homeland, just like Micaiah had predicted and prophesied. So the king died and was taken to Samaria, where they buried him. They washed off the chariot at the chariot wash at the pool of Samaria. This is where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked his blood. And don't miss the last phrase of verse 38, just as the Lord had said it would happen. Why is this passage so important and applicable and relevant to us today? Because there's even Christians who really are struggling at this point in the world with, I don't know whether God's really in control or not, of every detail, every detail. And even if the cards are stacked against us, if it's not God's will, it will not happen. And if it is God's will, there's not anything in the universe that can prevent it from happening. That's the story of Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And that's not the only story in the Bible that illustrates this principle. Let me give you two more tonight, and I could give you more. Another one is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, whose brothers did everything they could to get rid of him. And what does Joseph say at the end of the book of Genesis to his brothers when they come to him in Egypt as the second most powerful person on the planet at that point? Only Pharaoh is more powerful. He says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it all for good. God reversed it. It wouldn't have mattered what his brothers did. God's will and purpose for Joseph was that he would eventually ascend to the second most powerful position in Egypt, and nothing, no matter what his brothers did, whether it was selling them into slavery or even, you know, uh, Potiphar's wife doing what she did and throwing him into prison. None of that was going to prevent what God was going to see happen in Joseph's life. The Lord was with him, the Bible says. And again, that should bring us great comfort because God is in the details of even our life. One more. In the story of Esther, from the book of Esther, there was a man by the name of Haman who built a gallows to hang a man by the name of Mordecai. 
and did everything he could to stack the deck against Mordecai and see him hang on those gallows that he prepared. But the Bible says in Esther chapter 7 that the same gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai ended up hanging Haman. Haman hung on those gallows, not Mordecai, you see. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us the Most High, our God, rules in the kingdoms of men. And he doesn't leave anything to chance. There's no roll of the dice with God. There is no detail in this universe that is outside of God's sovereignty and God's control. So therefore, if God is in control, even over the appointment of my death, what have I got to be anxious about? And why should I be fearful? Now, this is not permission for us as human beings to live recklessly. We need to live responsibly. But ultimately, the message of the Bible is that God is in control. Therefore, I don't have to live my life in anxiety and worry and fear about what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to our families, what's going to happen to our church, what's going to happen to our world, because God is in control. And there's nothing going to happen in this universe unless God allows it or wills it. And it doesn't matter how bad the cards are stacked against us. And if you ever want to be encouraged by that, just go back to 1 Kings 22 and refresh your memory with the story of Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Ahab did everything humanly possible to get off that battlefield alive. Jehoshaphat made all kinds of decisions that were bad decisions to basically put himself in arm's way. And yet God spared his life because it wasn't Jehoshaphat's time. It was Ahab's time. And there's that archer just playing around, shooting that arrow up in the air. And that arrow, was, as I said, was better than any smart bomb our government has ever been able to. It landed right between the tiny spaces in Ahab's armor, right where it needed to, to make him bleed out, just as God predicted. In closing tonight, I'd like to just share a couple verses with you. And then we'll close. John's gospel. We're in the gospel of John a lot. We're going to continue to be. John chapter 14, verse 27, and John chapter 16, verse 33, and then we'll go to Philippians. And I hope that if you don't have these verses marked in some way or memorized, that you would be encouraged maybe to do that. John 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace. I leave with you my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed 
or lacking in courage, live in my peace. And then 1633, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me, in the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world and I'm in control of the world. And then finally, Philippians chapter 4. You know these verses very well, verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your request to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, do we need the peace of God today. As I was listening to worship music today, and I was listening to even a few Christmas songs, I was reminded of that last phrase of one of the carols that said, sleep in heavenly peace. That's what God wants for all of his children, that we would be able to lay our heads in that pillow at night and be able to sleep in heavenly peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you encourage us, God, in so many ways with so many things. And one of the greatest encouragements and comforts that you, we can have as human beings is to know, God, that you are sovereign, that you rule and reign over this universe that you created, that you are in control and that you leave nothing to chance. You leave nothing outside of your purview. Every detail of our life, God, is under your watchful eye. And so, God, I pray tonight that even as we go through these turbulent, chaotic times on earth, that we will Embrace your peace and be at peace in our spirits and not allow the things that are going on in this world to rob us of your peace. Help us not to live in fear and anxiety and worry and be all stressed out about our life and, and all of that, God, but to trust you and to trust the plan and purpose that you have for our life. Again, Lord, not to live recklessly, but to live responsibly, but to also live in faith, ultimately trusting in you to watch over us as your people. Would you, Lord, burn this message and engrave it into our minds and our hearts tonight so that we can carry it with us throughout our life? These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful break, and we'll see you all back here on January the 6th. God bless.